Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Uh, I want to thank you for your support. I want to thank you for tuning in week in and week out to Healthcare Unfiltered and supporting this podcast. Thank you for your opinions and for your thoughtful suggestions. Today's podcast is about a clinical trial, but really it is more about how urologic oncologists could be engaged in medical oncology and systemic therapy research that is often housed in the medical oncology uh, world. So as as you know, I mean, look, to deliver the best care to patients with cancer, interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary care is a must. This is really very important. It is very difficult to execute on GU oncology care without many times consulting with the urologist, consulting with the radiation oncologist, and really offering this opinion because ultimately we need to help patients. But for the most part, the majority of the clinical trials, when it looks at when, when they look at systemic therapy, they are housed in medical oncology. Well, Dr. Neil Shore is a urologic oncologist who is an exception because many years ago, he identified that urologists could indeed be engaged in medical oncology research. And he was able to build a fascinating career and was involved in hundreds of trials uh, and enrolled thousands of patients with GU oncology uh, cancers into, with GU cancers into these trials. So I've asked Neil to join me on today's podcast because I wanted to better understand how could a urologist really build an infrastructure that allows him and his practice to be heavily involved in these studies and in these trials. Neil has been an author and co-authors to hundreds of papers in major prestigious journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine, all of this because of his involvement in research that has transformed the way we care for patients with cancer, specifically here in GU oncology. But in addition to that, one of the trials that Neil has been involved in was a study called the INACT trial. This was published in JAMA Oncology several weeks ago, and it really looked at adding enzalutamide, which is an oral therapy. Uh, we call this an androgen receptor inhibitor that uh, in addition to active surveillance compared to active surveillance. So what that means is, as you know, there are patients with uh, prostate cancer, early stage prostate cancer that do not require any treatment. And as you know, localized prostate cancer usually is treated with surgery or with radiation therapy. But for a subset of patients with prostate cancer, they may not require surgery or radiation therapy if they have a very uh, mild disease, let's say, or a disease of low risk to progression. Um, and these are patients who often have Gleason score six or lower, and they have a low PSA, and they uh, ultimately uh, are more suggested by uh, the majority of thought leaders that they should be observed on active surveillance. And of course, the active surveillance schedule could uh, vary between investigators and between institutions. The trial that Dr. Neil Shore led uh, compared patients with low-risk disease who are on active surveillance and randomized them to either active surveillance or active surveillance plus enzalutamide. 
and it looked at what happens to these patients when they receive one year of enzalutamide and with the biopsies of prostate cancer becomes maybe cancer-free and, uh, and the trial was reported in JAMA Oncology. The reaction on social media for this trial has been anything but surprising. There were many people that were very upset of this trial and they called the trial inappropriate and all kinds of things. So I wanted to ask Neil about this trial in addition to the discussion that we are having about his practice and the GU oncology research. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Uh, please find the podcast on all podcast outlets. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast, write a brief review to the podcast. By doing so, you are helping more of your colleagues and friends to recognize that this podcast exists, and I'm pretty sure they're going to have a topic that they will enjoy. Uh, also, you have to watch all of these podcast episodes on uh, my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And you could also follow me on Twitter, direct message me on Twitter or Instagram and let me know what you think about the podcast and all of the episodes. Without further ado, Dr. Neil Shore, exclusively on Healthcare Unfiltered. All right, folks, we've got a first timer here. We've got a first timer on Healthcare Unfiltered. If he plays his cards right, it won't be the last time he actually comes on Healthcare Unfiltered, and he may even get a t-shirt. We'll have to negotiate that. Uh, my friend and colleague, Neil Shore, who we've known each other for several years, and we've actually uh, met in various circles, but I'm very fortunate to have Neil on Healthcare Unfiltered. Neil, let's start by a quick uh, introduction, a little bit about you and, and where you are, what you do, and how many hats are you wearing nowadays? <laughs> well, probably too many. My wife would say that. Um, and it, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Chadi. You and I have known each other, gosh, probably close to 20 years now. We've, we've worked together on, on studies, on education. I've really admired your career and what you've done and how you've, you've had a, a very fascinating journey. Uh, for me right now, yeah, I, I'm still very busy seeing my patients, having practice, doing clinical research, still operating. I'm not doing as many major operative cases as I was doing in the early part of my career, but you know, I still have my hands full uh, with, with clinic responsibility and research. I'm also the chief medical officer in urology and surgical oncology for Genesis Care. I still chair the educational committee for LUGPA. Uh, I'm doing a lot of work now with uh, specialty network and developing their research capabilities. Uh, love working with uh, the SUO and the executive board as the LUGPA rep all these years. And uh, when I'm not doing those, I'm trying to stay uh, you know, active in our, our US and our international congresses. I know I really love geo-oncology, and uh, I think there's just been so many great things that have happened, not only in the last decade, but the last decade and a half, but so much so in the last five years, especially in bladder and kidney cancer. So um, it's been wonderful. I really enjoy it. You know, we oftentimes hear about people burning out in healthcare. And I understand that, you know, there's the, the burdensome uh, challenges of regulatory and, and, and compliance and all these things, but the science and the research and the education is wonderful. And uh, 
that that's really what's my driving force. What got you into urology in the first place? Something in med school? So like how got, how were you interested in urology? Yeah, well, I went to, to undergrad and, and med school at Duke. And, um, you know, I was almost very ready, about ready to do, a, you know, cardiovascular surgery at the time. You know, Dr. Sabiston was the chair and remarkably charismatic and engaging and wonderful educator and researcher and brilliant surgeon. Uh, and then I did a rotation and, and, and got to work with urologists, and I realized how much fun they are. Urologists are fun. You know, they're surgeons, and they're also uh, very learned about the pathophysiology of, of renal disease and then also malignancies and other things non-oncologic. And I, I had a great mentor, a very well-renowned pediatric urologist named Lowell King. He was the chairman of surgery at Northwestern, and then he came to Duke. And I was amazingly fortunate to do work with him. He helped me do research in uh, the UK and in, and in Scotland and also in South Africa. So he was a wonderful inspiration for me. And I, I really hope many of our colleagues today are, are, are putting that level of influence that they can have on this next generation. I'll have to say that urologists have the best jokes. Yeah, always. Now, now they may not be the most, you know, kosher jokes. So you have, you have to be careful when you say them, but it's definitely the, the funniest, yeah. the funniest yeah. jokes. <laughs> yeah. They're funny and oftentimes inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you start doing practice, though, I mean, you have a unique set of practice. Obviously, I know a lot about it, but probably a lot of listeners don't. How did you get from point A to point B? Um, and tell us about the setting of your practice, because you have certain resources that I, I presume the majority of urology practices don't have. Well, you know, I, I, I finished my training in 1990. And, uh, you know, if you go back historically, it was quite, you know, you know, cynical and pessimistic, what some would describe as nihilistic for our prostate cancer patients, bladder and kidney cancer patients. I mean, we had pretty much, you know, very little bit. And uh, it was very um, daunting to me, you know, this, this level of despondency, especially in prostate cancer, once you failed testosterone suppression and androgen deprivation therapy. And of course, this was pre-internet. And uh, I started talking to folks at meetings and realizing that there was, you know, uh, the, the proverbial massive unmet need to help patients. And I would talk to uh, medical affairs and the leadership at various, you know, biopharma companies, academic uh, leadership too, which in urology was very surgically focused at that time. Uh, but no one was really paying attention to the, our, our patients who had metastatic disease. And there were, the, the trials were very focused at that time only in our tertiary academic centers. And I had so many of these patients but where I was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, is very far away from an academic center. And so um, I really started to recognize that it was important to enroll patients in studies. Uh, you know, I think about this great quote from Halstead, who said, you know, we're, we're, you know we should all be physician scientists. And, and, then, and then concomitantly that the, the, the wards or the clinics are research labs of the highest order. And, and I think that just really resonated to me and to, to bring clinical research 
into the, you know, truly into the clinic. And then ultimately that to have a, enough of a, a variety of, of research studies so that I could pull together that every patient became uh, accessible to a, a clinical study, particularly in cancer. And in the early days, I had to, you know, convince my partners who were frankly not particularly happy with what I was doing. They thought I, you know, it, it would be, you know, I should just be leaving that to tertiary centers. But honestly, they really weren't doing the level of accrual. And I had to, I was very fortunate to have um, a healthcare provider team, nurses in particular, and some administrators who kind of saw the the, the, the reasoning for why I wanted to do this, to advance healthcare, to advance opportunities for patients in my community that couldn't go to a tertiary academic center. And then by extension to, you know, and promote that education, not just regionally, but nationally, and I think internationally. And then as, as a urologist, though, uh, you know, when you're talking about GU oncology, bladder, kidney, and prostate, most often you're seeing patients presumably in localized disease, unless you have metastatic disease and you're asked to biopsy something. So, so were your trials originally or initially when you start focused on early stage diseases? And is that how you started? I really sort of did all my pioneering work in with androgen deprivation therapies, where we were going from the one month formulations to the three, to the four, to the six and the 12 months. And so realistically, most of these patients had metastatic disease. And, and then over time, if you, you fast forward with the development of docetaxel in 2004, great studies by Petrolac and, and Tanic until 2010 with Sapua cell T. And then from 2010 to now, we go from, you know, those another 10 life prolonging therapies. And they all start, as you know, Chatty, as you've done this work, uh, in the sickest patients, and it's it's typically for prostate, it's a binary endpoint, you know, it's survival or not. And we've made great progress working with FDA to look at some other endpoints such as MFS. And ultimately, when we find these a, a therapy, whether it's another taxane, a PARP inhibitor, all of the wonderful advances in androgen receptor pathway drugs, then it uh, and now of course the PSMARLTs it allows us to start moving more proximally. Uh, so that's, it's been you know, really wonderful in that regard. Basically, you were approached by uh, pharmaceutical companies to do some of the pharma-sponsored trials. Were you also involved in some of the cooperative group studies as well uh, and some of investigator-initiated studies, multi-center studies? Yeah, absolutely. So I personally have done about a half a dozen where I PI'd IITs. I've been involved in other of my friends' IITs. Um, we've done cooperative group, NIH, NCI trial-sponsored studies. Um, but you know, honestly, the vast majority of the trials that we've done, and I think we're now up to about 400, if not more, have been through biopharma. I mean, bottom line is they have their resources. And uh, you know, being by myself, I don't have the luxury of having a large academic institution to give me that type of uh, grant support within the organization. I, I don't have endowments and fellowships that I can rely on. So uh, as everybody knows, trials are expensive. And you know, I went from having uh, only an LPN helping me 
to now having 18 full-time equivalent uh, uh, colleagues who only do research. And that's a combination of, of RNs, LPNs, um, and administrators. So, you know, on, you know the, the, the business of running a research organization is not only to do what's in the best interest of patients, but also you have to remain economically viable, as all institutions do. And then, I mean, to do that, obviously, you had to hire staff and, and you've grown significantly. Did you have to cut on surgery? Like, I mean, did you have to actually, were you doing this in addition to surgery or you would take two days a week where you don't, uh, how would that affect your surgical schedule? So there's a lot of time and energy and effort. You know, it's a funny thing. I live in Myrtle Beach and people say to me, oh, you must golf all the time. And I don't, I pretty much gave up golf about 10 years ago. Uh, I only have one child. I have a remarkably supportive wife. Uh, I, I, I enjoy the work of what I do. So they're long days and weekends, but it's my passion and I enjoy it. Uh, I don't have a large amount of family responsibility. You know, unfortunately, my parents are deceased a long time. And so for me, um, I think those are re legitimate reasons why many of our colleagues whether they have a passion for a sport or, I mean, I love skiing, but um, I don't do that on a regular basis living in Myrtle Beach. And so, you know, it allowed me to, to give up a lot of my, you know, weeknights and weekends, but I don't look at it as a sacrifice. I, it's really what I've enjoyed doing. So that's probably why I've been able to be as, as productive. And then, Neil, I mean, as you were doing these trials, initially you started with the androgen deprivation therapy, and you probably started doing some studies with kidneys and bladder as well, with some of this new, uh, originally TKIs and something like that. Yeah, I, I got, with the moment the TKIs kind of came out, I started using, uh, you know, um, uh, serafinib and sutinib, uh, helped bring sutinib, it's easier to say sutent, to uh, went to the ODAC for them, uh, immediately got involved in checkpoint inhibitor therapy, started using them in 2016 in bladder and then in kidney. I mean, we even, we give ipinevo combinations here, just did trials with ipinevo and cabozantinib. And then back in 2016, also got very involved in recognizing the importance of genomic profiling. So we've been doing NGS. I work with all the different companies uh, you know, uh, both somatic and germline. And for me, I, I mean, I just recognize that this is not a question of if you were going to do it, but it was when. And so I, I, I realized that how important this was. And uh, I really tried over these years and continue to do so now to educate uh, my urology colleagues who want to do this, how important it is. I've never felt that this was a should be an internecine warfare amongst the specialties. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because you you know yeah. you're doing a lot of these systemic therapies, and I think you know there's whether it's right or wrong, but there's a sense that systemic therapy that is not related to surgery and using the knife sits in the medical oncology. Uh, world and conflict of interest. I'm a medical oncologist, but I've told you, I'm a big admirer of what you've accomplished. But, you know, needless to say, it's not commonly seen in the urology world. So how does this work when you say, I'm going to give systemic therapy for kidney cancer with the TKIs, I'm going to give the docetaxel 
of chemotherapy. I mean, you are not a trained medical oncologist or board certified medical oncologist. So help us understand the kind of setup you need to do to be able to deliver these systemic therapies safely to the patients. Yeah, that's a, that's a very fair and, and an important question. So for me, if I were practicing adjacent to a geomedical oncologist who was doing this and was passionate about it, I don't think my, uh, my career would have developed. But my medical oncologist, which I think is very true of many in busy community medical oncology communities, they're not seeing a lot of bladder or kidney cancer, and they're treating lots of breast cancer and lung cancer and colorectal cancer, um, blood-based cancers. And in, in particularly in my community, none of the um, medical oncologists were doing clinical studies. None, none. They were, they were, they were too busy, and, and they're, they're great people, highly talented, highly dedicated, but the, it just wasn't of interest to them. So I saw that that was a need for the community, and it was certainly an, a, a keen interest of mine. I, I personally believe that when a new therapy is getting developed, uh, that you know, if you have a physician, a medical degree, and you are you know, dedicated to it, and you can do it. Now, I, I, I'm completely against someone who looks at this as a dalliance, or that, that's grossly inappropriate. If you can work well with your medical oncologist, your radiation oncologist, your nuclear medicine radiologist, your pathologist, and do it in a multidisciplinary way, that is the best way to do it, for sure. Hands down, the, the classic academic model. But you know, we live in a world now where there is a true person power shortage. The average medical oncologist in the US and urologist, I think, is now 55 years old. And we have an explosion of the geriatric population, you know, this graying of the world theme or what some call the silver tsunami. So, and we also have more clinical trials than we sometimes have patients. So it just seemed absolutely completely in keeping with, with what I've been trying to do. If you have a wonderful geomedical oncologist in your in catchment area, then work with that person. I would have loved nothing more, but I, I just didn't have it, nor do I really even have it today. I'm still the only one in this area, you know, four hours away from Duke or two and a half hours from MUSC where clinical trials are even being contemplated. How about the non-clinical trial patients? I mean, I, I mean, I, I know that you enroll a lot to clinical trial patients and, and, and I, the numbers speak for themselves in terms of the number of studies as well as the number of patients enrolled. But it's fair to say that not all patients get into clinical trials. So for the standard of care patients, are you giving these patients docetaxel in the office for prostate cancer or cabazitaxel and things like that if they are routine clinical care? Uh, I am. I, I give, I give, I give uh, carbo and, and cabazi, carbo and dosi in my patients who are poorly differentiated disease. Um, the only thing I don't give, frankly, is cisplatinum. I uh, refer that to my medical oncology colleagues. But short of that, I, I, I pretty much will give everything. Uh, I often or regularly encourage patients to get second opinions, not only with my uh, joining uh, community medical oncologists, but sending them off to my good friends and colleagues at Duke, for example, Andy Armstrong and Dan George. I'm, 
always more than happy, or to send patients to uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering or Hopkins, where I know my friends and colleagues there too. And if uh, the last thing in the world would, I would ever do was hold someone back from getting a second, third, or fourth opinion. But, but to your, the, the basis of you know, the, your question is, you know, uh, when these drugs came out, uh, I spent a lot of time not only just learning about it, but of course, going to meetings and going to uh, educational seminars and, and having already used them in clinical trials. So uh, I never take on anything unless I feel very confident. I have separate infusion nurses for my clinic and separate infusion nurses and research, and I send them regularly to educational courses such as ONS or SUNA um, uh, and, and some you know, biopharma-supported uh, courses as well. So these are oncology-trained nurses that are yes. delivering. And then do you have advanced practice providers or medical oncologists employed in your practice to supervise or deliver, or is this, there is no medical oncologist in the practice? So our group currently is about 14 physicians, and we have 14 advanced practice providers, combination of NPs and PAs. Uh, I have had for the last six years a full-time uh, NP who has worked with me in addition to a, a, a other you know, key members of my team, RNs, LPNs, scribes, medical assistants. Um, I was just recently at a meeting of, uh, you know, put on by you know, specialty network. And uh, this exact question came up. You know, what's happened over time is you know, the one, two, three person practice is this is dissipating, is becoming anachronistic in urology and medical oncology and frankly, most specialties. Uh, aggregation is the key for economies of scale. And a, a big question that was asked at this meeting was, okay, these typical 30, 40, 20 person urology practices, they're all developing or most are developing advanced prostate cancer clinics of excellence. And now advanced bladder cancer clinics of excellence and advanced kidney cancer clinics of excellence. So will it be the Euro oncologist or should they bring in a medical oncologist? I am a big proponent. If you want to do bring in a medical oncologist and you have the volume, that is a great, that's a great um, option. And I think we're, we're seeing more and more of that. I'm aware of at least six or seven groups that have done that. I think you'll see more do that. But I also think that there are going to be educational opportunities for the right euro-oncologist who may be fellowship trained, who is not necessarily um, wedded to only doing the surgical uh, oncology. Uh, honestly, I think it's very difficult to be very busy doing the surgical major extirpative procedures and then coming back to clinic and taking care of complicated patients with metastatic disease. So, I mean, just in terms of follow-up, you have, so you have the infusion center and there's a system or a process by which you, um, these patients are followed for side effects and adverse events and things like that. But, but the management is you and the advanced practice providers, and uh, there is no actual medical oncologist employed currently. You mentioned something about uh, other urology practices. Are you, I mean, to me, your setup is very unique. I haven't seen a lot of setups like this. Are you seeing more in the U.S. 
urology practices venturing into this? That's the first part of my question. And the second part, do you do radiation therapy as well in your practice? And are you seeing the same for urology practices elsewhere? So I'll take the, the first part, uh, the, the radiation oncology. So we're subsumed under the larger umbrella of Genesis care. And we have three radiation oncologists who I work you know, wonderfully with. I'm on speed dial, they're on speed dial. So they deliver the radiation oncology services inclusive of radiation, you know, IMRT, IGRT, hypofractionation, but all SBRT, but also the theranostics. So we, you know, we're the, I think we, I'm pretty confident no community urology site enrolled more patients in vision trial would led to the approval of Plavicto than our site. Um, but it was the radiation oncologists who require, have the requirement for having the radioactivity materials licensed to deliver the beta particle uh, that is lutetium. We were the first site in the United States to deliver radium 223. My radiation oncologist, but it was my patient back when um, the Alsimka trial led to the approval of radium 223. We gave the first dose in the US um, uh, uh, post approval. We're proud of that. We gave the first dose of Cipula cell T east of the Mississippi when that got approved. And so it's a combination of, we work very well with our radiation oncologists. Now, getting back to that model of, of you know, I, I think we're going to see more and more medical oncologists going into larger urology practices because the, the urology practices are getting bigger and bigger. Uh, you know, the average size urology practice now uh, what goes into the organization LUGPA, the Large Urology Group Practice Association, which I'm super honored and proud to have been one of the founding members like 17, 18 years ago. You know, now our, our average size group, I think, is, 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 you know, around 28, 30 physicians, although we accept anyone who's a practicing urologist now in, in the United States. But this notion around opening up a solo practice, one, two, three person, I think is, 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 not, is not long for the future because of scale, the complexity of healthcare, the need for size, the, the need for a, you know, competent, sophisticated administrative leadership. And just help, let's face it, it's, it's just all gotten so much more complicated. Um, so I think we're going to see more and more medical oncologists going into the large urology group on, on a full-time basis. Do you sense, I mean, when, when, you, when you talk to people and meet people on the travel circle, do you sense that medical oncologists are a little bit upset with you a little bit? And like, you know, how are you giving chemotherapy? I mean, I'm the one who should be giving chemotherapy. Or, I mean, I, like, what's your, what's your, what's your sense um, of uh, your interaction with medical oncology? Yeah, that's a fair question. You know, honestly, um, uh, I'm so honored to be part of uh, organizations like the Advanced Prostate Cancer Consensus Conference, which is started by two um, remarkably talented medical oncologists from Switzerland, you know, Soka Gillison and Aurelius Omelin. Uh, I love working with my colleagues in academic um, geomedical oncology. I, I think my role has been somewhat of um, a, a very different and an outlier and, and unique. And, you know, again, I, I, I would say as long as the patient is getting excellence in care by someone who can deliver it well, that's the most important thing. 
my medical oncology colleagues are all incredibly busy. I mean, uh, you know, the medical oncologists in my own community and everywhere else I go are, they're not lacking patients and they're, they're very, very busy. And so I think, you know, 20 years ago, there may have been more of this um, uh, specialty internecine rivalry. I think today everyone's so darn busy. Uh, as long as patients are getting good care, I think it's definitely generational. I think some of the older generations, I even think radonx versus surg urologic surgeons from 20 years ago, 30 years ago to today have a much more collegial relationship. And I think the same is true with medical oncology. So I want to pivot a little bit into some of the uh, research studies, and I want to use an example of a research study that was recently published in JAMA Oncology. And I bring this up because it did stir a little bit of uh, trouble on social media, not to say that, I mean, social media is trouble, as you know, Neil. I, I don't see you very active on Twitter. I need to find your handle. But trust me, you're not missing much by not being on Twitter very actively. But uh, the trial I want to bring up is the INACT trial. And, uh, you know, I think that there was a lot of back and forth and all of these things. So I want to, I want to, now that everybody knows about your setting, everybody knows about the breadth and depth of research you've been doing for many years and understands where you're coming from, I think it's a reasonable opportunity for us to move into using this as an example of how a trial comes into your office, your practice, you look at it, you open it, you enroll to it, you get published. So how did this trial come about? When did this come about and, and how long ago? And then take us through the process of the study from the first time you were approached about until it opened, enrolled, and then published. And then we'll talk about the controversy. Sure. So, you know, I, 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 I think, um, you know, I, I think about uh, that wonderful uh, commencement speech that Steve Jobs gave at um, Stanford. And, uh, you know, I think it's been downloaded millions of times. And one of the things he said, and, and it was, was nice for me to hear it, was, you know, stay hungry and stay foolish. Those are two simple comments he made. And I, and I think I interpret the hungry as, you know, we need to continue to be challenging ourselves all the time, especially as physician scientists. One of the things that was why I, I really took a, a tremendous interest in research is I was doing all these prostatectomies back in the 90s and even in the early 2000s. And I'd get back the final pathology and it was, you know, Gleason 6, you know, 10% of the specimen in a 60-year-old man. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, please be potent and please be continent, you know, and I, and I started to realize, you know, that, you know, we were over treating and as, as were many, this was not a Neil Shore unique thing, but yet there was a, a lack of education on active surveillance and the importance of that. And then if you fast forward now, we're, we're doing better in terms of our active surveillance um, uh, adoption but we still are not anywhere near where we should be. So I started thinking, well, you know, what, what are the reasons? And it's complicated and part of it's PSA kinetics and part of it's education to not only patients, but also to providers. 
So I, I, I've been involved in numerous other active surveillance type comparator studies or augmented studies to see, can we keep patients uh, avoiding unnecessary surgical extirpation, unnecessary radiation, even unnecessary focal therapies, are there ways that we can administer a treatment that would uh, keep them from progressing histopathologically on a subsequent biopsy, uh, keep them um, uh, with greater fidelity to a surveillance? Not only would save them from the, the, comorb the morbidity of interventional treatment, certainly be potentially economically helpful. Now, I'm not saying that, that, and I never did say, nor did any of my co-authors, nor did the folks from Estella say, this was a registrational study, far from it. We looked at previous study with, for example, dutasteride that was investigated only in patients with grade group one disease to see what the, the impact would be on using dutasteride. And that paper was, you know, it, there were positive results from that. It was published in Lancet Oncology. So we, we said, well, well, no one had looked at an approved oncolytic agent, enzalutamide, and we took a patient population of not just grade group one, but also grade group two to see, could we help these patients stay on uh, an active surveillance path? But also, what would be the result with biopsying them? And what would, of course, the results of their PSAs? Pretty obvious that their PSAs would come down. We expected that there would be side effects that were very well known to enzalutamide. I, I'm quite frankly very proud of the fact that I've been involved in the affirm and the, the terrain and the strive and the prosper and the ARCHES trials, I've been involved in all of those, which ultimately led to an advancement of enzalutamide throughout that entire spectrum. So for me, it was logical that you would say, well, okay, we've seen benefits there, MCSPC, NMCRPC, MCRPC, pre-chemo, post-chemo. Is there a role in, in this population? It's controversial. I understand it. And I think a lot of the opprobrium that I received, I shouldn't say I, but myself and my co-authors was, you know, oh my gosh, wasn't this a foregone conclusion? Well, honestly, nobody had looked at an AR pathway inhibitor drug in this patient population until we did. And yes, there were some side effects, none of them unexpected. Did we also see a three times odds ratio improvement in negative biopsy compared to the surveillance arm, we did. Uh, did we see decreases in PSA? We only gave the drug for a year. Many, I think, on the, on the, in the Twitterverse were like, you know, I, I don't want to denigrate people who like to go on social media, that it is what it is. It's not, it's not going back into the bottle. But, um, you know, we, we, this was brought in front of IRBs. There were 63 sites in Canada and the U.S. that did this. And I, I, I found it rather kind of a, a, a to me, it was em, emblematic of what, you know, Twitter brings as people just spouting off because they can and they want to. And, and that's OK. I believe in, in free speech. Uh, but, you know, we did we have the data now looking at the data and looking at the full dose that we gave. I think there's a lot of opportunity to think about other studies, whether you reduce the dose whether you change the trial schedule, 
whether you look at other ARPIs, and I'm now working with another company where we have a, a, a pellet to implant directly into the prostate that is not absorbed systemically. So think about that, where you could give an AR pathway inhibitor drug directly into the prostate and avoid um, uh, systemic toxicity. So, you know, no, no study is perfect, uh, but I believe as I go back to the big earlier part of our conversation, um, you know, I believe we're all physician scientists and we should welcome the information and, and, and debate it. And, uh, but I, I, I sometimes think, you know, the, the, some of the adjectives and the vitriol is just really more consistent with what Twitter tends to be. And, and that's fine. Uh, you know, but uh, I, I, I think there are, we have some of our colleagues who are making a career of that and that's all right too. But I, I think um, I'm a little bit old school. I like to look at the data and we can, we can debate it and think about how we can make it better. So very well put, uh, Neil. I appreciate you uh, uh, obviously talking about this, <clears throat> and I know it's not easy to 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 come obviously on uh, on any any platform and discuss uh, a trial that has been labeled as controversial. Um, the, to to go back to when the trial was first initiated, the, the plan was we know that these folks are low risk, so they are on active surveillance. So you wanted to randomize these patients to either active surveillance or active surveillance plus enzalutamide with the idea of seeing whether enzalutamide reduces the, improves negative biopsies. I think the, what has been, what have you seen? I mean, I think folks spoke about that giving one year of therapy of this drug to a low risk patient could add uh, adverse events, financial toxicity, and you're taking a patient population that requires no therapy and just subjecting them to additional therapy that might not be warranted. That I believe that is what I have seen. Uh, I did not engage personally in the debate. I was I saw what uh, you know I, I I could see where this is coming from because these patients in real life you're just going to monitor and they may never require any therapy and a negative biopsy does not necessarily correlate with living longer, all of that stuff, the endpoints and, and, and what we talked about. Um, it, so so when, when you first opened that trial, you, your aim was that you can improve the outcomes of these patients who already had a favorable outcome. That's where people are struggling with. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I can't you know, reveal this, uh, the data, but we have an abstract that was accepted at ESMO uh, for 2022 in Paris, where we looked at specific um, uh, uh, subtypes using Decipher. And it's remarkably powerful what we described as to who would respond particularly strongly, powerfully with the use of enzalutamide. Um, you know, great work done by uh, Ashley Ross and, and, and Ted Schaefer and a team of others uh, as well. So that uh, abstract has now been accepted to ESMO 2023. And, um, you know, this was never designed and act as a registrational study. So the notion around the cost is actually makes no sense, frankly. This was just using a, a highly active or first androgen receptor pathway inhibitors came right after abiraterone. 
And so, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know until you do the studies. I've heard some argue, well, just gosh, you know, everybody should just, you know, do better, be better at their active surveillance. I can't argue with that. Uh, sure, I, I, I'm a huge proponent of active surveillance. I'm not starting on any of my AS patients on enzalutamide today. No, no, I would not. Uh, this, was, this was a scientific phase two study done with an incredible amount of rigor and we presented the results. So the economics is, is really an immaterial discussion because no one's moving forward right now with a pathway for regulatory approval. Um, so I think, you know, I think there is a sense though, and again, I'm not, I don't know how people will, will react to this. There, there was a sense that some folks in the real world may use this trial as an excuse to prescribe the therapy. You, you probably won't because this is what you do every day. You're, 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 you're a thought leader in the field of GU oncology. But for the general oncologist out there who does not see enough prostate cancer to make that decision, they might see this and say, okay, well, I'm going to see my patient. I'll just dispense enzalutamide. And sometimes it gets reimbursed. Sometimes it may not. But that's really where the fear comes from. Well, that would be a huge mistake. And uh, I, I, it's not, not probably, I definitely would not do that in an active surveillance patient and, unless this was part of a clinical study. So I would, uh, uh, I would 100% admonish anybody for the please do not do that, nor would I do any other androgen receptor pathway drug. Uh, I recognize that some people think that, you know, they, will, they, they do off-label prescribing. I, I personally am not a big proponent of that. Uh, that's why I do clinical trials. Um, you know, you, you put the data out there, you present, well, JAM Oncology is an extremely reputable and thoughtful uh, 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 publication with great reviewers. Um, you know, I, you know if, if our clinicians are going to, you know, um, be uh, irresponsible, well, then shame on them. Uh, but I, I don't think that's enough of a reason to say, don't do the studies and don't have the debate and don't have, and don't learn from it and design future uh, studies that may have uh, e an even better benefit with less toxicity and maybe better, more interesting modes of delivery. And I agree on JAMA Oncology. I sit on the editorial board, so I concur with you. Uh, in fact, uh, we're taping this on July 18, where we just have had our editorial board meeting. Um, what has been your personal experience with that reaction? Uh, I do, you know, I think we all react differently to social media, but we're also humans. Uh, and I think some of these reactions do affect us uh, personally, psychologically, emotionally, whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't know. Have you seen people reaching out to you and being angry? Have you had scenarios where people were upset? Have you had... Are there letters to the editors being uh, written that you need to respond to? What has been just your collective experience with this? And then were you really surprised with the reaction? Uh, like were you, because the, the reason I ask this, Neil, sometimes when you write an opinion piece, let's say I'm writing an opinion piece and I know it's my opinion, and let's say I'm being a provocateur in my opinion, I may expect a backlash and maybe I'll feed off it because I knew why I wrote the opinion. But this was not an opinion piece. This was a randomized phase two trial that you actually wrote, peer-reviewed, published in a peer-reviewed journal that is an impact factor over 30. 
you must have gotten a little bit surprised with this. T take me through what you went through when this came to press and yeah. tell us what happened. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that. Yes, I, I so I, I don't, I don't tweet, and I, I don't spend much time at all on Twitter, almost no time. I, I, I only got a Facebook page when my son was in, a young teenager, so I could see what he was doing. And now he's not even on Facebook. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't go on Instagram. I just, I'm, I, I have a hard enough time just answer, keeping my, my inbox, you know, uh, manageable. <laughs> Uh, that's the truth. Um, but one of my junior, my, you know, he's one of my partners. He's young. He's a full partner. He's, he does all our surgical oncology. He said, he said, Neil, you got to go on Twitter, man. It's blowing up. <laughs> I was like, I didn't, I didn't even know. I think I have a, a Twitter handle, but I don't even, I didn't even know how to get on. So I got on, I started looking at this stuff. I was like, holy smokes. And I, most of the people I didn't even know, a few of them I did. And then I just did an, a, 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 an interview for um, a, an article that's coming out. And the author is a very thoughtful guy. He's a prostate cancer survivor. And he told me some of the quotes from some of our colleagues who I know very well. And I won't name their names, but you know, one of them said, this study was unethical. A, a, a medical oncologist, she said, this is unethical. And then another uh, prominent uh, euro-oncologist said this was a, you know, a bogus design. And I was like, you know, it's so interesting how we've um, evolved or what some might call devolved in our, our dialogue and our choice of words. And I have to say, to be very honest, I was, I was disappointed when, when I saw some of my the colleagues who I really know, because I, I think I would be hard pressed to use words like that, but that's just really kind of where our culture has um, evolved or devolved to, depending upon your perspective. I, I, I'm very, I'm proud of the work that we did in this trial. I'm proud of all the co-authors. I'm proud of the patients. You know, you don't, you, you only learn when you do studies like this and you try to design a better trial. And, and that's how we make advances. You know, my whole North Star is, you know, where, does, where will patients benefit? And, and it's okay to have debate, but yeah, I would be, I would be um, disingenuous if I didn't say I was, uh, you know, sh somewhat sh shocked that as some of the, 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 the Twitter response, many, most of the folks I don't even know, and I don't even know what type of um, uh, um, uh, uh, experiences they've had in doing studies. And, and that's fine. I, 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 I do, like I said earlier, look, free speech is a wonderful thing. I, I, you have to take it in stride. Yeah. It's, uh, are you going to be more on Twitter now after you, uh, you know, I mean, no, you... I, 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 like I said, I said, Chad, you know, I just went away for vacation and even when I go away, I just can't. I, I'm never. You'll never see me put one of these things in my in my response. I'm away. Don't. Uh, I'll call you in two weeks. I, I, I'm a slave to it. I, I check it every day, you know, because uh, I have to keep it manageable. But I'm not getting on. I don't have no plans to get onto Twitter. Well, you know, you can always get on. I'll manage your account, but I'm not <laughs> responsible. So you're gonna get. Hey, uh, this has been really great, and I I know we have only just few minutes left, but. Um, are you, you know, some of the discourse usually for articles like this are handled with letters to the editors, to the journal, and then you have to respond. 
Um, I don't know when the article came out, but are you getting some letters to the editors and you're being asked to respond to it or it's just too short? Some depends on, I forgot actually. Yeah, uh, no, no I, I, haven't, I haven't had any to, to, for, uh, sent to me for asking for a response from JAMA Oncology. Yeah, and there was an editorial written in the journal pertaining to the article, I believe, at the time yeah. of publication. Susan Halliby. And she's fabulous. I think she gave a very, you know, thoughtful, um, you know, um, mature as she always is. I mean, she's brilliant. And uh, I thought it was very, you know, appropriate, measured. And uh, yeah, Yeah. it was very good. So you just came back from Safari. Where are you heading next? Right where I'm heading next is to just continue to dig out from my my clinic work for the last two weeks. But next, I would say, uh, you know, I'll be sticking around this summer. And next, I'm heading to uh, Paris for ESMO 2022. Well, I will be seeing you there. I'm, I'm going to be looking forward to seeing the uh, uh, additional data that you mentioned to us on this podcast. Um, and uh, I look forward to seeing you at ESMO in Paris. Neil, uh, it's been such a pleasure to connect with you and Really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I know how crazy your schedule is. Anything else I should have asked you? I may have forgotten anything. I mean, uh, you know, this podcast is going to be on Twitter, maybe LinkedIn, on YouTube. You know, you're going to be famous after this. I don't know if you know this. Not that you're not famous already. I, I probably said enough to already get myself into trouble. I better better quit while I'm ahead. Or I don't even Perfect. know that I'm I better just quit and not dig myself a deeper hole. Well, Neil, thank you so much for being with me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, folks, thank you so much for uh, listening and for being part of the podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, Let me know so I can send you one of the podcast t-shirts, Healthcare Unfiltered, free at no additional charge. Okay, well, there's no, why do I say no additional charge? There's no charge to start with to have a no additional charge. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. As you know, on Healthcare Unfiltered, we do not shy from controversy, but at the same time, we aim to educate and we aim to make sure that everybody benefits by listening to this podcast. I appreciate Dr. Neil Shore coming on Healthcare Unfiltered and answering rather difficult questions, as well as sharing with me and with you his insights. You can let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or by uh, visiting my website, ShadiNabhan.com. Don't also forget to watch all of these few uh, podcast episodes on the YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered and letting me know what you think. I'm always open to suggestions and ideas. And before I let you go, I'm gonna leave you with a saying from Theodore Roosevelt. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Until next time, take care.